Good morning. I'm suffering a little deja vu up here. I feel like uh, I feel like I've been to this point before. If I hear one of my old sermons starting, I'll know. But anyway, yeah, we're going to start in Romans chapter six. So if you want to turn there, and then from there, we're going to be going to Jeremiah chapter 20, Psalm 86, and then we'll finish up in Matthew chapter 10, just so we can kind of have a a smorgasbord of, of scriptures this morning. So Romans chapter 6, we're going to start with the second half of verse 1. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live to it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died to sin has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And of course, uh, we remember that that verse 11, count yourselves dead to sin, that is a counting language that actually means do the math. You're dead to sin. And pop over to Jeremiah. Verse, uh, Jeremiah chapter 20. And this pleasant little section is going to start with verse 7. You deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I'm ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say I will not mention his word or speak speak anymore in his name, his word in my heart is like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. I hear many whispering, terror on every side. Denounce him. Let's denounce him. All my friends are waiting for me to slip, saying, Perhaps he will be deceived, and then we will prevail over him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior. So my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will fail and be thoroughly disgraced. Their dishonor will never be forgotten. Lord Almighty, you who examine the righteous and probe the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance on them. For to you I have committed my cause." Sing to the Lord, give praises to the Lord. He rescues the life of the needy from the hands of the wicked. Then in Psalm 69, 
We're going to go start in verse 7. For your sake, I endure scorn. <laughs> for I endure scorn for your sake. And shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. Answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love, in your great mercy turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Deliver me because of my foes. And then we're going to finish up in Matthew chapter 10, where my bookmark just fell out. And starting down in verse 24. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the students to be like their teachers and the servants to be like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more are the members of his household? So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even if the very hairs of your head and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid, you're worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. It's hard to take that particular selection of Christ, of scriptures and then put on a tagline like, live your best life now. This could sound discouraging. Indeed, it, it is daunting, but there is good news there. This is actually just portraying what it is like to follow Christ in this world. We live in a time and place where we're not often confronted with the realities of this. We have a great deal of rights. We may face social ostracism for our beliefs, but by and large, we're not going to have a knock on the door in the middle of the night hauling us away for questioning because of our beliefs. But for a lot of people in a lot of times of the world, that is the reality. 
And that's what ties these four scriptures together. Now, starting in Romans, we have this wonderful picture. When we looked at the the book of Romans, we looked at that and we talked about how that fact that we're now dead to sin. If we've come to, to Christ, that's not our life anymore. We don't live for the world. We live this new life for Christ. When we went through the book of Romans, we talked about how that passage concludes with that language of accounting that doesn't mean try and convince yourself you're dead in Christ. It's like, hey, look at the situation, do the math, and you'll see you are dead to the world and alive in Christ. Because of that, we're now his people. Now, if we believe this story of the Bible that God created a good world and he intended to fellowship with us, but that it was damaged to our ancestors' bad choices, and that God has embarked on this grand project of reconciliation. If we believe that, if we're part of that, we have, not only are we part of that, but we have a part in it. We have a part to play. We have a role to play. We're part of the new creation. Not We're looking forward to it, but we're also agents of it as we are now. If the Bible was solely a book about how to get into heaven, if the gospel were just as it's been reduced to by some people, you're bad, you can't go to heaven, Jesus died to make you good so you can go to heaven. If that is the entirety of the gospel, then it really, probably the best thing that could happen to us is you, you know, pray the sinner's prayer, accept God, step out the door and get hit by a bus. You're in heaven. (laughs) But it's about more than that. It is about the redemption of the whole project. It's not just when do we get out of here. It's what is God doing and what's our part in it. And sometimes that part can be scary. We looked right after Romans at the prophet Jeremiah. And that psalm is actually a psalm relating to Jeremiah and what he went through. Prophet Jeremiah lived... Um, in the 7th and 6th centuries B.C., he started his ministry somewhere around 629, and his ministry ran up until the uh, destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in, in 570. And he wasn't, he wasn't called to a particularly happy time. Newsflash, most prophets aren't called to tell people how good they're doing. Prophets don't generally go in, hey, things are good. Hooray, you're all right. Usually they have a word of correction. Oftentimes, this was interpreted by the people as meaning the prophet was their enemy. When Jeremiah prophesied against the southern kingdom of Judah, he was treated as if he was an enemy, as if he was an agent of the enemy. He's going to be treated like he is an agent of Babylon, but he is not. He is sharing the word of God. And the word of God, that word that comes through the prophets in judgment, is always intended to bring about repentance and restoration. When we look at the story of the prophet Jonah, he did not want to do what God wanted him to do because he knew that if he did that, the people in Nineveh would repent. And they were such horrible people, he did not want God to spare them. He's like, I don't want to go preach to them because they're going to repent. 
Prophets are not the enemy of the people they're called to serve. They're actually God's means of redemption and restoration. We need to remember that when we're walking in that role too. We're not in an adversarial relationship. Even Jesus, who is going to be crucified, who is warning his disciples in here in Matthew about the cost of following him, those people that he is calling out, those people he is saying are children of Satan, those people that John the Baptist called a brood of vipers, he'll cry over them when he comes to Jerusalem. He said, how often I just wish to gather you into my arms like a hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't have it. So even when he's calling them out and saying, look at you, even when he's calling out the religious people and the Pharisees who are as hypocritical as it gets, when he tells them the proverb of the prodigal son, he makes sure that in there he has the picture of the father's love for both sons. So he's calling them out for their hypocrisy, but saying, oh, by the way, you're still loved by the father too. So God sometimes calls us into these hard and difficult ministries, but it's because he loves his creation and he's sending us into it as agents of redemption. But sometimes, sometimes that looks very hard. The prophet Jeremiah in his life called to be a prophet of God. One of the first things that happens to him is the people in his hometown. He was from a priestly family, by the way, a high priestly family, or no, actually just a high, a priestly family, but an important priestly family. And the people in his hometown, when he started prophesying, said, hmm, he seems to be saying a word from the Lord that's really annoying. Let's kill him. These are his relatives and his friends. Let's kill him. When he goes to Jerusalem, at first, there is a king in power, Josiah. Josiah is pretty much the last good king in, in Judah. We've talked about how the nation of Israel, after the death of Solomon, David's son, broke into two separate kingdoms, a northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah, which was pretty much just the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin and, and some of Levi. And that northern kingdom had, had always had bad kings. They had just gone away from God from day one. And they had been destroyed by the Assyrians. At the time Jeremiah is called to prophesy, that northern kingdom's gone. But the southern kingdom, Judah, is still standing. But while they don't have all bad kings like Israel, they have mostly bad kings, mostly people who bring them into idolatry and to worship other gods and will actually mix it with the worship of the Lord. So Jeremiah will start his ministry under this king named Josiah. And Josiah, he, he has a heart after God. It says, like his father David. And one of the things he wants to do, like his father David, he wants to restore the temple because it's fallen into real disrepair. So he gives instructions to the temple uh, administration, go to the treasury, pull out the money. We're going to give it to the workers to restore the temple of God. The people that are going to restore it, I trust them. They're honest. They don't have to give an exact accounting. That's kind of the instructions he gives them. Well, while they're doing that, they discover something 
in the temple while they're repairing the temple. What do they discover? They discover the Torah. It had been so long since they'd actually read God's word, it got lost. And they find the Torah, and the king's secretary reads it, and he's like, ooh, I should probably show this to the king. And the king reads it, and he realizes how far his country has, has this kingdom has fallen away from God. He rends his robes, and he starts a reformation in the kingdom. He begins to purge the kingdom of all the traces of foreign worship. Give you an idea of how bad what was going on was. One of the things he does is he gets rid of the quarters of the male shrine prostitutes in the temple of God. You can tell the country has kind of gotten away from the original starting instructions at this point, if they're that far gone. He tears down the Asherah poles, which are symbols of fertility, and he destroys the temple of Moloch, which is in the Valley of Hinnom, where people would sacrifice their kids in the flames. He destroys it. And, he, and when he does that, Jeremiah curses that valley. That will be one of the first acts of his ministries. He's going to pronounce a curse on the Valley of Hinnom. And that's actually going to come and find us again in Matthew because Scripture is always talking to itself. So what happens when Jeremiah helps Josiah purify the kingdom? One of the priests puts him in the stocks. Says, oh, look at what you did. You've messed with worship. Yeah, I got rid of all the idols and the prostitutes that were living in the temple. That's not a bad thing. But what happens? What is Jeremiah's reward for that? He gets put in the stocks in the in the uh, central square there for people to mock. Ah, some prophet of God, you're in the stocks. But actually, he is being a prophet of God. And it's right after that that he gives that lament that we read, that section of Jeremiah where he's complaining to God. He's like, hey, you deceived me, and I was deceived. Doesn't quite read that way in the Hebrew, although there's a lot of it. It's kind of like, hey, you sold me a bill of goods, God. But what he's saying is you persuaded me and I was persuaded. I followed you and look at what happened. But you've preserved me. I'm, I'm not dead. And he's right. He is preserved. He's not dead. But there's more coming. God will instruct him to prophesy to the continuing kings. Finally, he comes to this king named Zedekiah, who is going to be the last king of Jerusalem. He is going to speak the words of the Lord to him. Does Zedekiah repent? Does Zedekiah fall on his knees and say, oh God, please let this calamity fall, pass from us? No. He has the book of Jeremiah read to him, and as it's being read, he takes his penknife and he cuts the end off the scroll and throws it in the fire. And as another line is being read, he cuts the end off the scroll and he throws it in the fire burns it up. And then the wise and learned men of Jerusalem take Jeremiah and they throw him in an empty cistern because they don't want to be guilty of killing him. But hey, if they throw him in a pit that he can't get out of and he starves to death, it's not their fault if he dies. This is a great reward for following God. But Jeremiah is not left there. An Ethiopian named Abed-Melech, which means servant of the king, 
will actually rescue Jeremiah from the pit and take him and hide him. But this is what he got for the ministry that he had. He called, he spoke God's judgment to Jerusalem and they didn't repent. Well, not all of them, but some did. Some people like Ebed-Melech. Word, the Lord will give Jeremiah a word for Ebed-Melech, and he said, by the way, since you trusted God and saved me and you believed my word, when the Babylonians come and destroy the city, you're not going to go beneath the sword. There were people that heard, but by and large, people turned away from him. And that king, Zedekiah, who despised him, who wouldn't listen to the prophecy, and who cut it up and threw it there, The Babylonians capture the city because Zedekiah had promised his loyalty to them after they'd come before. He'd said, okay, don't don't destroy the city. We'll we'll surrender to you. I'm going to pledge my loyalty to you. And then he turned around and rebelled against them. They come and they take the city. They bring Zedekiah's royal princes, his sons, out before him. And they execute his sons before him where he can see them one by one. And then they put his eyes out so that the last thing in this world he'll see is his sons dying. That was the king that pronounced judgment on God's prophecies. But it was not an easy thing to be that prophet. That's not going to end Jeremiah's prophecies. When Jerusalem finally falls and the people are taken into exile to Babylon, it's Jeremiah that will prophesy a word of comfort to them. And he says, hey, when you go to Babylon... Pray for the cities you live in. Work for their good because as they prosper, you prosper. He says, I know the, hand, the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to give you a hope and a future. So his last acts of his, prophet, his prophetic ministry will to speak, be able to speak that word of comfort to those going in exile. So he does get to end on a positive note. But in the middle, in the middle, it's very hard on him. And that's going to bring us back to Jesus' instructions to his disciples in the book of Matthew. And he tells them, look, don't expect as my disciples, as my students, to be treated better than I'm treated. And if they call me the devil, they're going to call you the devil. Jesus did his miracle. Jesus did healings. Jesus delivered people from the, from the power of the enemy. And all the religious folks could see is he's not doing it like we thought it should be done. He must be in league with the devil. Yeah, you're, you're healing people. You're setting them free from demonic possession. But you're doing it by the devil. If that's how they treat me, don't expect them to treat you any, any better. If they call him the devil, you're the devil's disciples. You're, you're, you're my followers. You're my brothers. Don't expect not to get to be treated this way. And then he comes to this 20, verse 26. We have this really interesting statement. So don't be afraid of them. It's like, they're going to call you the devil just like they called me the devil. And because of that, don't be afraid of them. Huh? Because this is not unexpected. For there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. The most commonly repeated command in the Bible, I'm sure most of you know, is don't be afraid. 
Don't be scared. Seventy times it occurs in the NIV. Depending on your translation, it'll be phrased different ways. But that's the most common thing God says to people. Don't be afraid. Sometimes it's because an angel showed up and they're got faces like lions and eagles and all sorts of weirdness. And you might need somebody to say, don't be afraid. It, it makes sense. But usually it's, it's phrased in the form of, don't be afraid because. Don't be afraid because I have many people in that city. Don't be afraid because there's more with you than with them. Don't be afraid for I've commanded you and I will go with you. But this time he goes, don't be afraid of them because everything's going to come out into the open. Everything that's hidden is going to be known. That might seem a little odd if you're one of his disciples. All right, we're going to be, we're going to be persecuted. People are going to attribute wrong motives to us. And, but don't be afraid because everybody's secrets are going to come out. What? Yeah, everybody's dirty laundry. Um, I'm supposed to take confidence in this, Jesus? You know, you're telling me don't be afraid of the enemy and everybody's going to find out I'm the one that's sneaking the peanut butter from the jar at night. But he's saying, you're part of this story. You're part of this, re this resurrection of creation. And everything is going to come out and be revealed. There's going to come a time when this comes to fruition. When that time comes, everyone will know, you were following me. You were following your Father in heaven. You weren't following the devil like they say. So don't be afraid. And it's interesting that he doesn't promise a good outcome at that point. He doesn't say, don't be afraid because nothing's going to harm a hair on your head. He doesn't say, don't be afraid because I'm going to take you out. He says, don't be afraid because you're part of this story that's going on to the redemption of creation. This is what's going to give Christians courage in the coming centuries to face all sorts of persecution and death. This is why Christians are going to go into the Colosseum and face lions and be put to death, and they're going to be smiling about it. They're like, okay, but this isn't, this isn't where it ends. I'm good. I know the end of this story. We're not always promised immediate happy outcomes, but we are promised that we are part of a story that is ultimately happy. Not only is it ultimately happy, it is better than we can imagine. It is a restoration, that the scope of which we can't imagine. More things will be put right than we ever realized were wrong. And we're part of that. So don't be afraid. This is what I tell you. Jesus started his ministry hidden. He didn't want it to be revealed too early, but he did intend for it to be revealed. He said, what I've told you in the dark, you're going to speak in the daylight. What I whispered to you, you're going to proclaim from the roofs. He says, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. At this time, Jerusalem was under the occupation of the Romans. There were people with swords that could put you to death. There are people who will put Jesus to death. He says, you don't have to be afraid of them. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The, the word that's in the NIV is translating as hell here is actually Gehenna, which is the Valley of Himnom. That valley where the people were putting their children to death 
in the fire to worship Moloch? That's the place that Jesus is talking about here. And what he's saying is he said, don't be afraid of people that can cause your physical death, but you do need to have fear about the things that can lead you away from God to where you're not only being killed physically, but that you're dying spiritually. You need to be afraid of that. The kingdom of Judah was not afraid of that. And they went there. He says, but don't. So he tells them, that is something you can fear. But then immediately, right after that, he goes, but here's why you don't have to fear. <laughs> are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Uh, sparrows are cheap. You can buy a couple of sparrows. I have plenty of sparrows around my place, you know, if somebody wanted to come. I, although I'd prefer people bought starlings, you know. Can't have too many starlings. He said, but, you know, you can get two sparrows for a penny, but not one of them is going to fall to the ground outside your father's care. Even, God even knows the number of the hairs on your head. With some people, that's easier than with others. And you're worth more than many sparrows. If even the smallest things are under God's sovereignty, you're not going to go astray. Whatever happens to you, you're going to be okay because you will be in the Father's will and you know what the end of the story is. So you don't have to be afraid. Now the people he's talking to here, these 12 disciples, one of them's going to walk away from this and turn his back on it and he's going to end up killing himself. One's going to live to be a ripe old age. But the other 10 they're not going to come to what we would consider good ends. But they're going to die in their father's work. And because of what they do, his project of redemption goes on. And they have a good assurance. He says, so don't be afraid. He says, if you acknowledge me before men, I'm going to acknowledge you before the father. But if you disown me before men, I will disown you before the father in heaven. That one always used to scare me. But then, look at Peter. It's not talking about having a moment of weakness. It's not talking about your knees buckling at some point. It's like, what do you do with your life? Does your, is your life about God? Or is your life about this world? Does the fact that you may not have prosperity at every step bother you so much that you're willing to turn away from God or are you just going to go, okay, I know the end of the story, I'm all right. Because things will come to challenge you. Your family will come to challenge you. Talked about Jeremiah, the first thing that happened to him was his, his relatives tried to kill him. I can honestly say that when I came to faith, None of my family tried to kill me. There may have been other times in my life when I was younger that my father might have been tempted to offer human sacrifice, but, but not over my faith. So I, I don't know what it's like for them to kill you. But people can kind of look down their noses at you. Your neighbors can look down your noses at you. If you believe this, you will have people tell you that you're on the wrong side of history which is silly because until history is done, we're never going to know 
what the wrong side is unless we believe that history has an ultimate goal and we believe we know what that goal is and then we probably won't be on the wrong side of history but people will will speak about that that way he says but if that matters more to you then me you're not worthy of me and these are people you would love this is your family this is your children well something's going on here One of the reasons that we're commanded so often not to be afraid, not to fear, is that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word that gets translated to be afraid is also a word that gets to be used in terms of reverence. Just like we're told not to be afraid of things in the world, we're told to reverence God. When you fear things in the world, It's almost idolatry. You're saying that they have more power and purpose than God. Ooh, that thing, that that thing is more ultimate than God. But it's not. Now, I said that prophets, they're never the enemies of the people they're speaking to, even though these people may treat them like enemies. If you love your family more than Christ, you have nothing to give them. Remember, you are God's messenger sent to them to tell them the good news of creation. But if you put them ahead of God, you have nothing to tell them about. But if you put God first, you know, in in the original, it will talk about hating your family, but it doesn't, it just means in comparison to God. Because if you truly love your family, you will always put God first. Because if you always put God first you will have something to give them. You'll be able to tell them about the new creation and hopefully bring them into it. So don't be afraid. It's not easy to follow God. We're not always promised victory at every step as we would see it. But don't be afraid because in the end, that glorious revelation, that glorious summing up, will happen, and it will be better than we could ever imagine.